Welcome to the MS Dev Show, episode number 11. This week, we talk with Phil Hack about GitHub, the human JavaScript ebook, universal Windows apps, and 10 real-world algorithms that dominate our world. Hello, Carl. I got some good news for you. What's that? Uh, so we finally got this uh, issue straightened out. So now, uh, if you are a Windows Phone 8.1 user, you can go into the podcast application. If you search for MS Dev Show, you'll actually get our feed in there now. So we were in the... 8.0 directory and now Bing is finally indexing us so that we show up in the 8.1 directory because like I mentioned on a previous episode the uh, uh, the new podcast app now uses Bing as the as the back end so we're finally showing enough relevance in there that uh, that we're showing up so that that's a lot easier for people to find us now instead of pasting in an entire URL yeah I was talking to a few people that you know they got it in there but it, it was definitely tougher than just typing in MS dev show and hitting enter Exactly. So we got an awesome guest today. So we have uh, Phil Hack with us. How's it going, Phil? It's going well, Jason. So, uh, so Phil, he he works. He currently works at GitHub, and he formerly worked on the ASP.NET MVC team at Microsoft. Um, so I followed his journey along the way, and we're going to be talking to him a little bit later. But Phil, feel free to jump in on any of our stories. We're going to get over to the news. Okay. So, so, uh, so Carl, let's let's just jump into the news here. So. We got a couple things here. I ran into, I found this online. I thought this was really interesting. There's a, there's a free ebook on that's published online and it's called human JavaScript. And I thought it was, I, I kind of skimmed through it and it's, it's just a pretty good book for covering, not just, um, you know, here is how JavaScript works, but it's some of the philosophy behind how to structure things, how to build applications and, uh, I thought it was just a, a really good resource for, I think there's just a lot of tidbits in here that, that, you know, somebody who maybe does a little bit of JavaScript, a little bit of programming might find useful. Yeah. And, and I, I've done some bigger uh, JavaScript projects as well. Um, some that were pre-existing, some from scratch and uh, you know, some of the code was really done really well and some of it wasn't. And this gives you just, you know, a lot of tips to writing it for other people, uh, right. making sure that when somebody can go in there, they can just kind of figure out what's going on. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times that's a little bit harder to do uh, the way that people tend to write JavaScript. So like, like you said, there's a lot of really good tips in here for people to just get off and kind of, you know, understand a lot of, a lot of little pieces. Yeah. I think there's a lot of JavaScript books out there, you know, from beginner to advanced, but this one, I just found it kind of unique because it just took a totally different approach to this. It's got a mixture of code and philosophy and some real world examples in here. So I recommend checking that out. We're going to include a link in the show notes. But one of the interesting things on this, I, I had actually never seen this before. Phil probably has seen this, but um, this was published using uh, gitbook.io, which I found kind of interesting. So what it does is it uses uh, GitHub actually on the back end, and it makes it so that uh, it's basically a publishing platform. So you can write a book in GitHub and have that go to um, a couple different places. Let me... Uh, let me pull up the list here. So you can publish it, you know, via HTML online. I think this will also spit out some other different formats if that's what you're looking for. But they they provide a, a publishing platform where you can uh, sell your book on here. Um, and it's it's a good way to advertise as well. Have you seen this, Phil? Uh, no, I actually, I, you know, I think I've heard of it. But uh, looking at this, I love this idea. Just uh, yeah. having gone through the publishing process with uh, other publishers, mm-hmm. It's so painful. You're shipping around Word docs and, you know, like trying to make sense of uh, 
co- comment notes and on that and with multiple copies everywhere using markdown and github and git it just seems like a no-brainer to me and yeah. I, I wish more publishers or all publishers were on board with this approach yeah because i've heard that that's that's a major issue especially whenever you start looking at like amazon's format i think there's what do they use epub and then mm-hmm. Apple uses a different format. I think there's, you know, and then there's also PDF. So there's a couple different formats out there for, for publishing. And uh, Markdown is a good common denominator here. Yeah. I mean, for most books, you don't really need like really fancy formatting. You, and the, the part you're really being paid for is the, the words, the content. Um, mm-hmm. One of my coworkers, uh, Scott Chacon, wrote uh, the Pro Git series or the Pro, uh, yeah, Pro Git in. Um, mm-hmm. Markdown on GitHub. I'm not sure if he used Gitbook though, but uh, like looking at just simple things like being able to look at the diff and the history of those, um, you know, the content was is really useful when you're working on like the next edition of that book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, <clears throat> I'm a real fan of Markdown as well. Um, one of the things that we use um, to publish our site is Markdown. And one of the ways that we get, um, we do our show notes in OneNote and we convert that to Markdown. Um, and then uh, you can use um, one of the intermediary steps is you save, you export OneNote to HTML. And then um, you can use a, a, a software called Pandoc and it basically converts to anything. And oh, we convert, so that's how you're doing it. Okay. Yeah, we convert the HTML to Markdown. Um, and at a, at a previous place, we did all of our documentation in Markdown as well and used Pandoc to generate Word documents because everybody wants Word documents or PDF as the nice output when looking at the documentation. But those don't really version control very well. You can't see the diffs nearly as nicely. Yeah, I kind of yeah. turned uh, I turned Carl on to Markdown recently because I, I converted my blog. Um, I don't know. That must have been coming up on a year ago now, I think. And uh, so it's a completely static site now, you know, where I have everything stored in GitHub and then the entire process of publishing is, is done by Azure. So Azure just monitors my GitHub repo and it gets converted. And uh, whenever we set up the site for the MS dev show, um, I basically um, forked that code. Actually, I think I just copied it because I didn't want any of the, the history. I just grabbed like a, uh, you know, a copy of it and I removed a whole bunch of the extra stuff out of there. And we started publishing it that way. And Carl said, Hey, can you show me how this works? And, you know, it took all of like 60 seconds. It's like, well, here's the, here's how the markdown goes. You, you know, you paste your content in here in markdown and then you check it in and everything is fully automatic. So it really can't get much simpler than that. Yeah. And I see your blog, uh, as well as like that, right, Phil? Yeah. I'm using uh, Jekyll and GitHub pages to host my blog. Okay. Yeah. I'm using, uh, I'm using DocPad, but I think it's, you know, it's basically the, the same concept there. Um, so that was, uh, I, I just thought that was kind of interesting the, the way that they were, you know, actually publishing books like this. So I, I, that was sort of something unexpected that I came across. Uh, what do you got, Carl universal apps? Yep. Um, at build this year, uh, Microsoft announced that the concept of a universal app, this is something new. Uh, you can develop for it in visual studio 2013 and, um, there's a new template type of called universal apps out of the box. Um, it creates a Windows Store and a Windows Phone 8.1 um, app. Um, it's set up into, it looks like three projects. It's really two um, for the store for your phone and something called shared. You can put all of your, the code that's common, all the business logic, all the 
you know, you can even put view models in there and they can work uh, in both clients. So you can keep that, you know, instead of code in one spot, you can edit it once it gets updated for both of your apps. There's a, a few other additional benefits that you get out of universal apps too. It's not just the code sharing. Um, when you deploy them, you can, uh, right now the stores are, are, are different. They're not the, the same store for the phone and for the windows store. Right. And they can be linked. Um, there's a, a new icon that will show you. It looks like a, a tablet and a phone in front of it. When you see that, you know, that there's, there's another app in the other store. Um, when you buy one, if, if you're set, um, if you're selling these, you can have it set up. So if you buy one, you get both. So you don't have to rebuy them. Cause I know that sometimes that's a pain. Like if you're out getting angry birds or cut the rope or one of those popular games mm -hmm. that, that wasn't around before. So if you had to buy it, you had to buy it in the other store as well. Well, on iOS, a lot of people use that as a, a money-making scheme because there was angry birds. And then the iPad version, I think was like angry birds HD. So yeah, I, I wanted to ask you, Carl, so how, how does this work if I, so let's say I buy the universal app on my phone and then I go over to my tablet. It just shows up as a, a purchased app then in my list. Yes. Now okay. a developer can, you know, choose not to do that, but it's an opt out procedure as well. Okay. So, you know, if you, if you want to charge for each, you have to go and change some code. Okay. Yeah. Um, one, one point I wanted to make on this that I, I know we had covered this in the, in the build uh, recap that we did, you know, right after in the episode, right after build. Uh, but it probably got mixed in with a whole bunch of other things. The shared project does not result in a binary. It actually gets merged in with those other two projects. And I think that's an important distinction. Um, yep. It's not like a, a, you know, a portable class library is a little bit different where you actually get a binary out of that. Exactly. It gets uh, compiled in with each one to its own native thing. And right. if you do have some, you know, platform specific code that you just can't refactor out, you can do if platform statement, um, uh, compiler statements. Right. So um, the other last thing, you know, that's just reminders, a benefit of universal apps is you can share in-app purchases between the two. So if you buy, you know, an extra, you know, a pack of extra lives for a game in, in the phone, you'll get it for the, the windows store version as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, um, I, I love that idea of being able to, you know, play something on, on one device and then you sit it down you pick up, a, you know, I do this all the time. I pick up a different device. Like I just want it to be, you know, everywhere you are. Yeah. I do, and I, it's just, it's just a different size screen. I want the same, the, you know, basically the same app. I, I understand it's going to be reconfigured or whatever, but I want it, you know, I just, I want all that state to be there. Yeah. So, um, another link that we'll have in the show notes for those of you who just want to check it out, see something, not just the template that's there because there's not a whole lot of code in the template. Um, we'll link to a, a channel nine page, um, that shows an actual game fully developed with a lot of comments and you know, an entire article around it. Uh, it's a universal app written in VB. Um, I also kind of chose this cause, uh, right now at work, I'm working with a bunch of people who are just VB developers and, you know, for, for those of you out there who are, who are like that, don't know C sharp or, you know, more familiar with VB, uh, here's a universal app written in VB for you. Wow. That's pretty cool. Um, yeah, VB is not for me, but that's, uh, that's pretty cool. Uh, you want to move on? Yep. So next one up here, this was an interesting article that you found. So it's the real 10 algorithms that dominate our world. Um, should we just run through these? Sure. I think these are pretty cool. So number one, go ahead. Merge sort, quick sort, and heap sort. Mm -hmm. So we've all kind of ran across these in college or university. And um, 
you know, we have an idea about them, but you know, these are things that we may not directly think about them all the time, but they're in all of our APIs, they're in our SDKs. We use that. I mean, um, I'm a .NET developer. I use link. So, you know, dot order by descending, you know, we don't think about it, but you know, there has to be some sorting going on there when that mm-hmm. happens and it's using these and it's, you know, it's important to know, you know, the, these algorithms that were set down before us and how they work. Yeah. When I interviewed at Microsoft, I was a little terrified. They're going to be like, you know, Hey, write uh, write quick sort on the whiteboard. <laughs> I, I would have failed. Like I, I understand the conceptually what it is, but um, you know, it's definitely not something you do every day. Yeah, it's funny. I did get a question, not not that question, but yeah. I I did get one of those type of questions when I interviewed uh, Bob what, six years ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they were. Um, there's actually there's there's actually a book. It's called uh, How to How to Move Mount Fuji, and there's there's all if you know before I interviewed there were a ton of. Um, you know, I did a lot of reading and they were, they were talking about all those crazy questions, you know, like why are manhole cover covers round and things like that. And then some of the pro the programming problems that they might have you do on the whiteboard. So those always, they always scare me. Uh, number two. Fourier transform and fast Fourier transform. Now this is something I do not understand at all. I, I look at it. I might grasp a grasp a piece of it, but uh, I'm glad other people do. Nice. Yeah, it says like everything use wireless, any kind of digital signals. Yeah, and your Wi-Fi. Yeah. Well, I'm glad somebody I'm glad somebody gets it and is able to write that portion of it. Yep. Uh, number three. Dijkstra's algorithm. Now yep. this is this is the one where you know the shortest point between two paths using like a, a weighted path architecture and uh, how to calculate that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I always found this to be one of the more fun uh, aspects when I was going through uh, school. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm wondering, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm such a geek and this is going to really show it, but you know, like a lot of times when I'm in my car, you know, my, I, I use my GPS all the time, even if I know where I'm going, right. I put it in there cause it, it tells me, you know, how far to the net, to the exit that I need. Um, you know, cause it'll say like 3.2 miles. So I know like, you know, if I got to pass people or, you know, what I got to do there, but I'm always trying to figure out, you know, how does the GPS work underneath the hood? And I, I assume that it were it uses some kind of algorithm like this where, you know, we, we see a street as kind of a, you know, it's like a winding road, right? It's not a straight path, but the fact is, you know, it's really point A to point B and there's a certain, you know, cost to taking that path. So yeah. if you, if you think of, if you think of maps that way, it becomes a lot quicker. And then you can also have a path between two cities that's comprised of a whole bunch of other paths. And then you can start to, you know, those are sort of pre-computed. And then you can figure out, you know, in, in reasonably short time with not a lot of compute power, the shortest path between two points. Yep. Number four. Number four, the RSA algorithm. Yep. Once again, I don't really understand it, but I, I do understand the overall concepts and, and of, you know, encryption and cryptography and, you know, why they're important. Right. Not necessarily that I know how to do it. Yeah. And what's interesting too, I, I, I thought I heard in the news that the RSA, they had put a back door in for the NSA and I, they, they did it for some so, small sum of money too. You know, NSA gave them, I thought it was like, I don't know if it was 10,000 or 10 million. It was, it wasn't much. So that's, that's a little scary. 
Yeah, well, that yeah, that's specific to the <clears throat> RSA, the company, and not the algorithm. The al- oh, algorithm okay. is secure, but the software that implements the algorithm may have had a backdoor. Uh, and, I got you. And, that it, makes and sense. it wasn't that it was necessarily a backdoor, but they put a weak random number generator algorithm in. So they were there was a bunch of um, different options to use, and the NSA uh, paid them to use the the weakest of them. Interesting. So it was a specific weakness. It wasn't even a. It wasn't like a backdoor. It was a weakness. Correct. Exploited. Oh, that's interesting. That's a, that's a interesting way of doing it. Uh, number five, secure hash algorithms. <laughs> so now, what does this one do? So, um, everything from like how, uh, antiviruses detect viruses, um, to, um, you know, getting, uh, app stores use them. Um, also, oh, this is passwords. Yeah, yeah, I was gonna say this is really just a this is really just a hash. Well, so it's really just a hash function. I'm not sure what the you know if you make a hash function function cryptographic, I guess it'd be like a SHA one or um, you know that type of hash, right? Or mm-hmm. or bcrypt. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, definitely very very important and underused. I might add. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, if you, if you don't know how to properly implement this kind of stuff, just don't do it. If you are not an expert <laughs> in it, don't do it. You know, uh, find just, a good library. Well, uh, <laughs> find a find a, a really good library, or or just outsource it. And I think we've talked about this before when we've talked about identity. You know, use somebody else as an identity provider. You know, if you don't want to, if you know, you shouldn't be in the business of storing passwords if you don't know how to do it. So just rely on somebody else's login. Now you still have to integrate with that, but a lot of times. You know, if you look at like Microsoft and a couple different ways to integrate with that, you know, there's some libraries from Microsoft to integrate in that are pretty foolproof. Um, number six, integer factorization. Now, th- this comes in huge in in cryptography. Um, you know, just figuring out how to take a big number and break it into smaller numbers. Um, you know, when you're working with uh, prime numbers and and cryptography. That's what it's based on. Oh, this is cool too. Yeah, it says, um, for example, let's see, an algorithm that efficiently factors an arbitrary integer uh, would render RSA public-based cryptography insecure. Interesting. Okay, number seven. Link analysis. Um, I didn't really look too much in this, but they've got a pretty impressive uh, uh, picture on there that just has a, a few points and how they're all connected to each other. And just being able to understand what, what those connections really mean. Oh, this kind of looks like this is sort of like the the graph databases and using machine learning to figure out you know correlations and things like that. Net- networking. Yeah. Right. And this is the basis of PageRank, like Google's right. search algorithm. Right. Yeah. This is this is pretty huge. Yeah, I've done uh, in the past. I had I had implemented a, a correlation algorithm, and I was actually using it for um, metrics on a on a web page. So I knew you know, the, the position of your website in Google and Bing, I knew, um, you know, uh, what, you know, for certain keywords, what the positions were, I knew what the page rank was and what I could do is I could correlate different things. So you could figure out, for example, you know, even if your, your page shows up higher in Google than on Bing, it does Bing actually make you more money. So I was, I was applying those types of algorithms. Um, let's see here. Number eight, this one looks interesting. Proportional integral derivative algorithm. <laughs> Say that 10 times fast. <laughs> so what is this one? So it's, it's a, a control loop feedback mechanism to kind of compensate for errors. And they said everything from, uh, anything in a factory, mm-hmm. um, a cell phone network, they're constantly, 
you know, doing those compensating for their signals. You, you put in a signal, the one that you read might be slightly different. You got to compensate for that. You know, Carl, I think we implemented this at our at the last company that we worked at. Yes, we did. I can't remember what it was called, but we used an the, algorithm it was like the, this. We the PID loop. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Oh, yeah, right here. And it even says it has those letters. Do you see that? Mm-hmm. PID in the boxes. Yeah. So we 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 actually we've actually implemented this algorithm, and that was to filter out. We are actually monitoring ambient light within a an industrial facility. And uh, what we would do, you know, the light, you know, because the clouds can vary. So we were using a PID loop and we had to tune that loop so that we could actually get a a decent signal and know, um, you know, get a good reading on what the actual ambient light was. Very interesting. Uh, Number nine. Data compression algorithms. Mm -hmm. So without this, we wouldn't have MP3s, uh, pictures. Um, Our Internet access would take forever. Yeah, this podcast would take forever to download. (laughs) Yes. Okay. Number 10, random number generation. Yeah. Um, once again, the, the pseudo random generators that are implemented in, you know, things like the .NET framework and in other APIs, I kind of understand conceptually how they work, but mm-hmm. you know, it's still kind of magic under the box. Yeah. This is definitely, um, that's used in just about everything though. Well, that was, that was a fun list though. So I'll include that in the, in the show notes. Um, yeah, and it, it's something that, that, we all as developers, you know, interact with every day and we might not realize them. So sometimes it's kind of important to get back to your roots and just kind of understanding what's going on underneath the seams. Yeah. Uh, I was talking, I was talking to somebody, you, you know, today about their code and I realized, you know, pointing out to them, you know, right here, you're actually under underneath, you know, all of the magic of the .NET framework, you're opening up a pointer right here. And that's why, you know, this thing is going on and it's acting like it is. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, just understanding what, you know, what are you doing? What is the layer underneath you doing and making sure that that all works the way you want it to. Yeah. I'm definitely going to, I'm going to read up on the ones here that I don't fully understand. I think that's really important because, you know, you kept alluding back to, you know, back in college, I know that, um, you know, we, we were taught some of these things and, you know, at the time I'm like, why are we learning this? this is, this is silly, you know, like the, the sword algorithm as an example, but um, you wouldn't believe how many times, like another one is a big O notation, you know, for determining, um, you know, a, a magnitude of how long something is going to take. You know, I thought that that was kind of silly at the time. I use that all the time and it's not that I'm sitting down and actually like trying to work it out. It, it's just that it, it's just sort of built into my brain. I can figure out, you know, Hey, this, this loop is inefficient, but it doesn't matter. And this loop over here, it's also inefficient, but it actually does matter here. So, so the, these fundamentals, if you, if you have these kind of in the back of your head, they can, they can come in useful quite a bit more than you would think. Um, so I want to get to Phil. So once again, we have Phil hack here. So if you don't know who Phil hack is probably most of the people listening to this know him, but, um, I first discovered Phil discovered, uh, <laughs> I discovered him. Some long lost island that you <laughs> yeah. failed the seven seas to find. Yep that that that's pretty much the story. You know, I was in a I was in a submarine. I call it a subtext. No, so <laughs> so Phil, uh, he actually ran a, a I don't know if ran is the right word, but you managed a, a blog engine called Subtext, and uh, yeah. I, I used that blog engine, and it was based on dot text, correct? Right. It was effectively a fork of dot text because um, okay. at the time, community server or the uh, was it, IntelliJ decided to mm-hmm. 
create community server off of dot tech. Oh, that's and right. So, I totally forgot about community server. Right. And so, and community server is a paid product, but uh, I don't know, they might've had some sort of free version, but it was pretty, you know, in my mind, co- complicated. And I really liked dot tech. So I decided to, well, the original source code was in, under an open source license and you can't retroactively revoke that license. So I mm-hmm. took that, the last version of the open source version and decided to uh, fork it and make subtext out of it. Okay. Yeah, it was a great blog engine. It was, uh, I, I really liked that one. I ran that, I think it was for a few years that I that I ran it. Um, I think that's what I ran pretty much the whole time until I switched over to uh, WordPress, which, you know, ended up, I don't know, I'm not a fan of WordPress these days, but I used WordPress <laughs> for about two years after, after I used subtext. So, um, so kind of going, going back through your history. So you, uh, um, I know that you worked at Microsoft. I mentioned that earlier on the ASP.NET MVC team. I remember following you there. You did a lot of, uh, really cool stuff there. I actually met you out at the, uh, the last PDC, you know, while it was still called PDC, I think it was the last one I was on on the Redmond campus. And, uh, I got a chance to talk to you at that time. And, uh, that, that was, uh, that was a pretty neat experience. Uh, the whole PDC on campus was really neat. So, um, you know, about two and a half years ago, you left Microsoft and you announced that you were going over to GitHub. So I guess my first question is, you know, how difficult was that leaving Microsoft? Uh, that's a good question. <laughs> uh, I mean, on one hand, I was really excited about what GitHub was doing and right. excited to go to GitHub. On the other hand, I was involved in very interesting projects there, not just ASP.NET MVC, but, um, NuGet, which uh, I think has taken off in a very big way, right. and is one of the, one of the things I'm most proud of that I worked on over there. So leaving those projects and and being involved in those, I think that was perhaps one of the more difficult parts. Plus, you know, the friends that I've made there and and some of the good people that I worked with. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there were certain concerns I had about the way Microsoft was doing things, which uh, in the intervening you know two two and a half years they've fixed a lot of those things you know it's really good to see someone like scott guthrie become a president at get at, micro, at, GitHub, right. at microsoft <laughs> yeah. wait what yeah, are you announcing to him to be president <laughs> of GitHub, but uh, he's not returning my calls anymore okay good <laughs> no, but, but these changes in satya i think are really positive for microsoft so i'm very pleased for my for microsoft's sake to, yeah. to see that um so yeah it was a little bit difficult but i was also really really excited by um what i understood github to be at the time yeah. Well, that's interesting. So, so you mentioned, you know, that, that you were a little frustrated with, with some of the things. So was that, um, you know, was, were you, you know, you were frustrated with some of the, the, you know, just the, the direction of some of the policies at the time, or was it just things were moving a little bit slower than you wanted? And I'm not saying that you, you know, you were unhappy. I, I'm, I, I think you were very happy whenever you were at Microsoft, but the, um, you know, the, some of the, I know some of the things that you were pushing for took some time. So did it seem like that that wasn't going to happen while you were here? Uh, no, actually. So in terms of the open source policy, uh, that sort of thing, I saw constant movement while I was there. And yeah, it was certainly slower than I would have liked. Mm-hmm. But the fact that we saw forward progression, I think that made me very happy. And and I feel very good about that. Yeah. And as we've seen, it's continued to move forward, uh, you know, with uh, folks like Hansman are still over there and Scott Hunter and Guthrie all, you know, really backing, you know, it's the three Scots, right? Yep. Plus, plus, you know, many other people who are in the working in the background to continue that 
progress forward because not because not just because I think you know oh this is a you know like feel good thing to do but because I think it's really good for the company I think there's a lot of benefits that they realize they'll take away mm-hmm. so it, it wasn't so much that uh, at the time there was a very deep hierarchical approach to the management structure that often led uh, managers who weren't necessarily in touch with uh, you know the the developer audience for example mm-hmm. to really weigh in heavily and, and use their position to uh, weigh in on technical decisions and I found that to be a very big challenge and 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 the uh, at the time github had this very uh, you know non-hierarchical approach that they they would often talk about and so you know this idea of trusting people you know pushing trust down to the people who are closest to the work that really appealed to me and I found that I was lacking a lot of that and also just the the way the company was structured you know if you were a program manager uh, your full week was pretty much full of meetings there's a very meeting heavy culture so mm-hmm. a lot of it was the culture of the company and the management style and and things like stack ranking which I found to be uh, toxic mm-hmm. uh, were the types of things, it, and it, it wasn't that it, that it made me unhappy. It's just that when I saw a company that would say things like, you know, meetings are bullshit, let's not have them. I was like, well, you know, that's kind of a fresh perspective. <laughs> I was really interested in, in hearing what, the, uh, you know, what GitHub had to say about these things. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah, that's a very, very interesting perspective. And over the, over the past year, even since I've started I've seen such an amazing transformation. Fortunately, you know, I, I'm on a team that, that formed right when I started. So, you know, we're, we're a little bit, uh, um, you know, we have different, different I, I, ideals and, and we were already sort of matching where the company was, was heading. So it wasn't, wasn't such a big transformation for, for our team over the past year, but we've seen, I've really seen like the rest of Microsoft really get like that. I mean, they're, they're really, it's, it's, they're really embracing the, the open source community. They're, every pretty much every team now is is asking for feedback and if you go out and you look at the the user voice um you know the lists for the various products i mean you can pretty much go off of that list you know the 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 order that they're voted up in and that ends up being what what gets implemented or at least that's the that's sort of the order that they the priority they take internally some things take longer than others but yeah i've seen i've seen such a transformation so it's interesting hearing you know what it was like a couple of years ago Oh, so, yeah, I mean, they even got rid of stack ranking. So like, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, so I, I joked with my former uh, manager that you know they you guys got rid of stack ranking and made all these changes because you're trying to hire me back, and I understand that, but <laughs> it's not going to work. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So that leads me to my next question. So I'm I'm curious, like you know, how different you you talked about this a little bit, but how different is it working for GitHub? So. That's a challenging question because it's so different from when I joined GitHub to today. Um, mm-hmm. When I joined GitHub, we were 50 employees roughly. Okay. Uh, today we're um, about 230. Wow. So even even like my experience initially joining GitHub, it was extremely different. But um, today it's even different from them. Uh, at the time when I joined, it we didn't really have this concept of manager leaders. Uh, there were certainly people who were what you might call a de facto leader, right? Through mm-hmm. the power of their influence. Um, there was a group of founders, so they were, you know, in some respects, managers. But it wasn't really formalized or clearly stated. Uh, we're moving towards a model where all these things are a lot more clear. Um, you know, we recently hired a 
a few months ago, we recently we hired after like a year long search, we hired a director or VP of uh, HR. Okay. And so we're getting a lot more. We're, we're, without trying to sacrifice sort of the spirit of what made GitHub special, we are trying to uh, be a little more focused on sort of the infrastructure of what a uh, you know, the personnel infrastructure, so to speak, what it takes to run a company, right? And being mm-hmm. a little bit more uh, formal and conscientious about that. Whereas, you know, in the past, for better or for worse, we were uh, to some degree somewhat anar- anarchic. Mm-hmm. But but I really like that because I really like the autonomy and, and that I still enjoy and uh, the uh, the trust that we had for each other and that sort of thing I, th- I thought was really good. Like the lack of meetings, you know, really. And uh, the big thing that stayed true, that's the probably the biggest difference between uh, what I had before is the how thoroughly our company embraces a- asynchronous communication and, and workflows. Okay. And what I mean by that is about 70% of us are remote, I'd say. And mm-hmm. it that's highly embedded in our DNA. Um, whereas... You can go to another company that may talk, you know, give lip service to, oh, we allow people to work from home and that sort of thing. But, uh, you, you know, when you look through their culture, you'll find things like at Microsoft, if you had a meeting, um, not to bag on them, but if you had a meeting that involved a remote person, and Hanselman's probably told this story many times, mm-hmm. the first 15 minutes of that meeting is always trying to get the uh, conference call equipment set up properly so that that person can join in. Right. So, you know, one answer is, well, get better conference equipment. The other answer is, well, try not to have these synchronous meetings, right? Or mandatory meetings, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, we have meetings, but a lot of the times the meetings are recorded so people can watch later, and we rarely have meetings that where people have to be there at that time because, you know, I work with two people from Sweden, a person from Australia and New Zealand, uh, and me here in uh, Washington, like, how are we going to have an all group meetup, right? It's right, just not right. going to work very well. Interesting. Yeah, my my team, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to be on a team where it's a very similar situation. We have, I think, a little over half of our team is remote. So, you know, it's a little bit more, uh, you know, it's not like we have 20 people and, and one person is, is like the remote guy. Um, so, you know, it, it, it definitely varies, uh, you know, varies by team. Um, but yeah, that's, that's a really good point with the asynchronous communication, recording the meetings. Um, we do some of that. That's, um, yeah, it's definitely good if you can, if you can include everybody and, and not, you know, intentionally give all the people that are there, you know, some, some huge advantage because they're the only ones that get to hear your message. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's something that takes constant vigilance as well. And that'd be, like, for example, you know, there is a sort of uh, PST bias that we talk about, right, which is the headquarters is located in Pacific Standard Time, um, San Francisco. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times, you know, people might, you know, have a quick chat, uh, online chat in San Francisco time zone and make a decision uh, where and then someone over in Sweden will come in later and say, hey, you know, like I didn't. I didn't get a chance to input on that. And so we try to be conscious, like, for example, in a pull request, uh, not to merge them immediately, but like add comments, but then let it sit so that people in other time zones have the opportunity uh, to chime in. Uh, If it's a trivial thing, you know, we might just merge it. But it's more for like, you know, bigger decisions where we want more people to look. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sometimes that feels like, well, does that mean you're moving slower? And I think... Uh, you know, maybe a little bit on some things, but, you know, you can also run a lot of things in parallel that way. So 
I think it balances out and uh, it, it works well. Like you have to make concessions to work remotely well, but I think they uh, come with a lot of benefits in the end. Yeah. Um, GitHub as the site over the last few years has taken off pretty big. Um, is there any attribution that you would say led to its big rise? Uh yeah, so I think when you look at the growth at github.com, one of the big aspects, and this is something that I think uh, Chris Wanstroth and uh, Tom Preston-Werner have talked about in the past, which is when people talk about GitHub, often what they're really talking about is their own project, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, you post some code to GitHub that you're very proud of and you go tell all your friends, hey, check out this really cool code I wrote it's up on Mm github.com. And so I think that really helped uh, lead to the spread of GitHub is that we provided this really cool platform for people to work together on code and talk about their own code and share their code. Uh, What led to, but why GitHub for that? I think the other part is just, um, in my personal opinion, I really think it's the design has always been uh, just really well thought out not uh, not not just aesthetically, but also in terms of workflows. And uh, um, I think that's a big part of it. I think, you know, even when I first joined, there were other hosts that had more features. But the the way you integrate those features and the way you bring a person through the flow is really, really important. And, and even aesthetics has an impact, you know, like if it's something that's, you know, garish to look at, it kind of adds a sense of uh, subconscious friction throughout the day. Mm-hmm. So I like to look at things in terms of like how much friction does it add to the day that that you might not even notice, but at the end of the day, you know, you're just pissed off at some some software, and if you can lower that friction, I think it really helps uh, people want to use your site. and And I just found like you know, I even when I was a .NET developer, I just really found GitHub a joy to use. I mean, I had a lot of trouble with Git back then, but GitHub I really loved using. Yeah, I think you're right too. The, you know, whenever I want to sort of convey that I have some code that, that is just open for people, I'll just say, yeah, I have it on GitHub and that has a certain kind of, you know, connotation with it. Right. And, mm-hmm. and I, I think you're right that the, the name it's sort of gotten, uh, advertise, you know, it gets av- viral advertising because of that. Cause I, you know, I'll talk to everybody. Yeah. My code's on GitHub. So I, I mm-hmm. think that's, uh, that's absolutely right. Yeah, I think that's something that I missed out when I first heard of GitHub is I didn't understand the social aspects of it and, you know, how important, you know, just some of that sharing is. And at first I was just thinking, well, one, it's Git and Git's scary. And two, <laughs> why why do I need to make my repos public? Right, right. So, so I mean, GitHub, I mean, it has Git in the name. Is Does GitHub have any influence on the development of Git itself? Um, I guess it depends on what you mean by that. We do have an employee on staff who's, uh, I think, the number two committer to Git. So in terms of, you know, like having a, a degree of influence into, you know, like what he chooses to focus on, I would imagine, you know, there, there, there is some amount, if there's a real problem that's blocking us, that makes sense for Git. But I wouldn't say we had the coercive influence. Um, we can't tell them any, you know, what to do, much less much in the same way we can't tell any open source project what to do. Um, but we do contribute to Git uh, quite a bit. So I imagine that, you know, that comes with its own set of influence. And then yeah. we also, you know, build our own clients on top of Git as mm-hmm. well. 
Yeah, and we actually, or at least I use the the GitHub client uh, personally for when I when I do interact with Git. Um, what what are the other big Git clients for people out there who might not be familiar with them? So the ones that we ship are GitHub for Windows and GitHub for Mac, and uh, for um, other clients that you can use are uh, SourceGear has a uh, Git client. Um, there's Tortoise Git, which I think is a little rough, but uh, yeah. it's not. It's not. It doesn't have the same polish as like Tortoise SVN. Um, but some people use it su- uh, successfully. And then there's something called Git extensions. So there's quite a few Git clients out there. I think um, you know I'm I'm pretty partial to ours, but it doesn't. Ours is sort of streamlined for and focused on, you know, using Git in the context of GitHub. So it doesn't have perhaps every feature that you might want um, within a Git client if you're a Git power user who just doesn't want to use the the command line. No, I, the, the GitHub for Windows that you guys release is, it's it's really amazing. I, it's, I always uh, promote that for you guys because what I like about it is it does have that simple interface and I I tend to, you know, a lot of Git power users say use the command line and I, I do. Um, but what I end up doing is I use the the client sort of as my starting point. So I use it to, you know, just to just to sort of navigate the list of repos that I have, you know, on GitHub and locally because they might be in Git, in uh, GitHub, but I might not have cloned them yet. And then mm-hmm. also being able to right click on one and say, you know, jump into the into a shell that I use that all the time because that gets me into that shell where, you know, it's already, pre, already pre-configured that I have, you know, PowerShell and I can have like Git commands and, and everything is pre-configured for me. So that's that's huge for me. And um, so I really like it. And the, the biggest thing that I use in there then is the uh, is the diffs, you know, where I can visually see what changed in all the files. So you guys have really streamlined how that works. And then uh, I don't want to forget the biggest feature. Uh, the most important feature out of all is the emoji support. You want to talk about that? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes. The most important feature of all time, right? Yeah. 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 We recently added emoji support and commit messages. So you could, uh, you do the colon just like you do on github.com and then it gives you the emoji drop down. And, uh, that was a, a lot of fun to write. I actually had to, um, find uh, to figure out a good way to do the autocomplete i dug into the wpf toolkit and uh you know like like you said i was a mostly a web developer before i joined github but mm-hmm. i've been uh you know for the past couple of years crash coursing and my knowledge of uh, wpf and uh, i want to go back to real quick about the the shell like even mm-hmm. for git power users if you're on windows if you're primarily windows developer but you consider yourself a git power user uh, get you know command line power user uh, for nothing else if for nothing else you might as well install git for windows because i think it's the best way to get the command line on your machine yep. like you mentioned you know you use github for windows as a starting point um, we have like you know uh, like here's a pro tip if you select a repository and you hit the tilde key that'll bring up the shell for that repository Ooh, i like that uh, yeah, we were inspired by Doom. Do you remember Doom when yep, you hit the yep. tilde mm-hmm. to get to the console? I D D Q D. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so uh, that's it's a great way to bring the console, and like you said, it's configured with PowerShell and PoshGit, which is um, yep. a really cool extension that uh, Keith Dalby wrote that uh, gives you this extra, almost like heads up information about your Git repository. It'll show you, uh, you know, in the prompt whether you're behind, ahead. And uh, just a lot of really good information there. Um, using it with Poshkit is just 
makes it uh, really, really nice. It gives you a uh, tab completion for a lot of the commands. Mm-hmm. So it's a great experience. Wow. This tilde thing, this, this is, this has just changed my life. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm a new man. This is awesome. This is incredible. Just pick it. Yeah, that's, that's yeah, great. Yeah, I find that that's, that's really useful, right? It's just to, to quickly drop in there and then you're in the right context. You have posh get configured. Um, and then I really, the other thing, like I'm, I'm, I use the command line a lot myself you yeah. know, it's because of, you know, I have all these aliases and I'm, I'm used to it, but I, I use uh, GitHub for Windows for creating the commits. It's nice because you can stage this, a set of files for the commits by just checking the ones you want in that commit mm-hmm. and doing that through the command line is kind of a pain. Uh, it's a um, huge, it's a huge pain. And, and people, I've had so many people give me crap for, for not using the command line. And there's just, there is no easy way to do that at the command line. And they're like, oh, you just, you know, get add. And then you type in the file name. Well, the problem is that the file name, like I, I was showing somebody, I said, okay, I, I have 10 files. I want to add five to this commit. And they were all nested like five folders deep. So you have to sit there and sure you can hit tab, right? But then you got to, yeah. you got to keep typing a couple of letters, tab, tab, tab. I'm like, this is going to take me, you know, I don't know, let's say 60 seconds, which is an eternity <laughs> in computer time, right? So right. whereas, whereas I can just go into the, the GitHub for Windows client, check, check, check. I can see a nice visual diff, type in my message, hit commit. It, it's so much easier. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you, with the command line, you can do file name patterns if you can come up with a pattern that will include only those five files, but not every other file. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's not <laughs> happening. Yeah, like, so that, that aspect is, you know, one of the things that we want to try to do to um, make it, it easier for people who are using it. And even, for, you know, like over time, we'd like we'd like to have features where power users even are like, yeah, you know, I use the command line for a lot of things, but I really like using it to do this thing or that thing. And then the other thing, you know, um, because our roots are in Git, we also, you know, behind the scenes, the type of things that people don't always notice, we we try to respect a lot of the Git conventions. So uh, if you start typing a commit message, you'll notice that if the message gets long, we sort of gray out, you know, a- after about 50 characters. And then uh, we and we show a little message that says, you know, good git com message, uh, git commit messages, uh, good kit git commit messages are short. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, you know, we suggest you put the rest of it in the description. And the reason for that is that, um, you know, git it comes from sort of like a terminal base, you know, like uh email based system where people would send send these you know uh, commits around and, ch- and change this and all that and so when you're looking at git commit messages in a terminal you know it you don't want it to be too long because then it has to wrap and it looks you know all, it messes up the output um, the other thing we do is if you type a really long description we actually do a um, when we create the commit we do a hard wrap for you, which is uh, follows sort of the Git conventions, and once again, you know, it goes back to terminals, which you know, for whatever reason, don't do soft wrapping. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, if you're making commits through our um, through our tool, we'll actually format it in the way that a Git neckbeard would be happy with. Whereas, you know, a lot of times, if you do it through like a text editor, you know, you'd have to manually make sure you're hard wrapping those things at the right character limits and. And so little little touches like that, you know, we want like like you might be a noob to Git, but if you're using our tool, hopefully the commits that you're creating will not, uh, you know, will not uh, give that away to others reviewing your commits. Yeah, it's a it's a good uh, a good gateway drug for for the product <laughs> for sure. On on GitHub, there's a there's a project called OctoKit.net. 
Um, it's an API client for .NET. Can you tell a little bit uh, a little bit more about that for our developers? Yeah, absolutely. So this is something that uh, the, the .NET version is something that uh, my team started, and uh, OctoKit is kind of a, an umbrella of all our API clients. Uh, clients to our um, GitHub API. So from the GitHub API, which is a uh, web H- you know, HTTP-based REST API mm-hmm. into github.com that lets you do just about anything you could imagine uh, with, Git- with GitHub. Uh, so when you use this API, GitHub becomes more than just a website. It becomes somewhat of a platform. So one example is if you're building a developer web-based developer tool, for example, and you want people to be uh, authenticated to it, but you really don't want to mess around with the authentication system, kind of like we talked about earlier about, you know, don't, you know, don't write your own hash algorithms, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you could decide that, well, you know, my t- application's so tied to GitHub anyways, I might as well use GitHub's OAuth authentication to authenticate into my app and not have to deal with managing users. So you can do things like that. And so a lot of, a really good example of that is if you, um, if you use something like AppVayer, which is a online uh, continuous integration slash build system, mm-hmm. you can authenticate to AppVayer using your GitHub account, and then, you know, AppVayer doesn't necessarily need to you know, keep keep all that, uh, build its own account system, and then it integrates nicely because GitHub supports webhooks, so you can uh, tell it, you know, to launch a build, and then um, there's uh, you can. Through the API, you can access, you know, a list of your repositories, users, teams, mentions, everything. And so, um, octokit.net is a C-sharp wrapper that uh, allows you to call into the API. It just makes it easy to do that. And it, it's open source. Um, we accept contributions. Uh, in fact, there's the API is so rich, we're still not done implementing it. Uh, so, you know, we're looking for people to help contribute and, and build it out. And... Uh, it's up on NuGet as well. You can do uh, install package uh, OctaKit. And we also have, for those who really like the uh, Rx, Reactive Extensions style I was just going to mention that. I was just looking at the source, and I was reminded that you guys are a fan of Reactive. Oh, yeah. We're big fans of Reactive Extensions. Yeah, so we have a Reactive version, OctaKit.Reactive. So if you prefer using iObservables instead of tasks, you can use that. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I love uh, I love reactive extensions. Cool. Yeah, this is pretty neat. I could probably waste a lot of time just looking through the source code. Yeah, contribute. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> I, maybe, yeah, maybe I will. I've, I've been trying, you know, I personally, I've been trying to do, um, I think it started a couple of years ago. I've been trying to, you know, I always ask myself whenever I'm working on something, writing some code, it's like, okay, can I, can I make this public or what portions of this can I make public? And, um, you know, cause, cause a lot of times it's like, you know, I, I don't, I don't intend to make money on it or whatever. So I, I, that's just what I do. I just, I, I try to default to public. One of, one of the issues I run into, and I wanted to ask you about this. One of the issues I run into is like connection strings for, let's say it's for a database or something. So I want to, I want to put a project out there and it, and it connects to these, these other resources but I don't want to put the connection string in the project, but if I move, you know, that kind of information outside of the project, then it just makes it diff- more difficult for my workflow because whenever I go on a new machine, you know, I got to pull down the source and then I got to integrate that in, you know, I got to like configure that connection string. Do you, do you have any advice there on, on how to deal with that or? Uh, 
Yeah, if you so don't, that's fine. Uh, there's a couple ways that I might deal with it. I mean, one is have another type of service or wherever and that can set those environment variables. So like some sort of service broker. But okay. um, perhaps an easier approach if you just want to stick with Git is that uh, you have a private repo that's for your specific instance mm-hmm. that uh, basically submodules in the open the open part of it. So um, are you familiar with submodules? Uh, no. So so Git submodules is a way for you to add effectively like a pointer in your project to another repository. And so when you clone the the root repository. Um, you have to use the right commands, but hey, guess what? GitHub for Windows will do this for you when you clone it. Mm-hmm. It will. Um, you have to. You can pull in the submodules into the project, so then um, they'll auto. You know, and then they, it'll keep those up to date. So, so is what this you like? Might, a, is this like externals for Subversion? Yeah, it's very okay. similar. Very similar to Subversion externals. Different in implementation, so you don't want to like you know it, into it too much. But it's effectively that, and so. Uh, what you might have is, let's say, uh, let's let's pretend hack.com was a proprietary code base, right? You know, hack, mm-hmm. I might have my private hack.com repo and then submodule in Jekyll, right? Mm-hmm. And then uh, it might, so when I'm working on it, you know, I'm working on um, all the changes to the Jekyll code base. I pushed it back to Jekyll, but all the change, the only files that are in the hack.com repo are just the things specific to my instance, like my connection strings or okay. whatever you know, configuration. Uh, I think that would be a very effective way to work it. P- a lot of people get really afraid of submodules because, uh, you know, they can be a little tricky to work with. Uh, we've done a lot to try to make that better, and we're continuing to improve that in, in, in our GitHub for Windows and GitHub for Mac clients. Um, but I think, it, you know, when, once you understand how they work, it's not so bad. Okay. Yeah, I'm definitely going to check that out because I have... You know, I have some old defunct projects too that I ended up putting in GitHub. And before I was able to put them in there, I had to search around for passwords. I mean, it, it was a it was a lot of work to make sure that I didn't have any any type of personal information or credentials in there. So I want to I want to just start to get this habit of you know a workflow where uh, I'm just avoiding doing that. I don't want to risk you know publishing that type of information. You can probably do a search on GitHub and find people that you know put their password in the repos. Yeah, I mean, like, main thing is, you know, use git ignore to make sure you ignore, like, if you where whatever file that might contain that information right. on your system. I mean, if you if you can avoid even putting in a file and use environment variables, that that works really well. If you have it in a file, use git ignore and you know, use Dropbox to sync that file or something like that. Okay, cool. So changing gears a little bit, um, one thing I noticed, you know, I I, I read your blog, and uh, I noticed that. Well, first I had, I saw the, the section, I think it's called contributors. And, mm-hmm. uh, I thought that was interesting. I'm like, how are they contributors? And then I realized I, I found a page where you sort of describe how this works. And we talked about this earlier. Your site is, you know, driven off of Markdown. It's a, it's a static, statically generated site. Since it's in GitHub, people can actually, you know, issue pull requests though. So they can, they can actually make changes to your blog and then send them over to you. And if you approve them, they'll, they'll go live. And yep. I, I just thought, um, I thought that was I thought that was really cool just applying that not just to software but to you know to something like your blog like you know I have a static blog but I didn't even think of that I'm going to I'm definitely going to steal that idea and 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 start doing that as well. Um, yeah, do it. Yeah, cuz then instead of 
instead of getting these people in the comments like, oh, you made the stupid grammar mistake or spelling mistake, which are, you know, absolutely inevitable. I, I guarantee there's at least one mistake in every post. You can just say, well, you know, if this is if this bothers you, go fix it. You know, <laughs> yeah, um, you put the power in their hands. Yeah. And a lot of this is, was enabled by a lot of recent features and in, improvements into the, the GitHub pages uh, feature, right? Mm -hmm. uh, for example, if you go to any of my blog posts, you'll notice there's an edit link on every single yeah, um, I did. Yep. blog post. So, uh, you know, I just kind of reverse engineer what would that link need to be in order for someone to edit it. And what happens is when you click that edit link, it, uh, it brings up a uh, the inline, you know, GitHub editor for that page for where the markdown content of that page is. And uh, it, since nobody but me is a contributor, it actually creates a fork transparently. Um, actually, it creates a fork when you're ready to commit. But it, it mm -hmm. what ha will happen is you can edit it, you can type a commit message, and then you when you hit commit, it will fork it to your account and then create that commit and then submit a pull request right back to me. Oh, wow. So I, did, just, I didn't know it was that automated of a workflow, too. Yeah, that's pretty powerful. Yeah, so that, that, yeah, that's the beauty of it, right? Is that, like, you should try it one time just to, you know, like, change some sentence of my blog, right? Click edit, change a sentence, hit, you know, go through the process, and you, you'll realize that it's extremely easy this way, right? Like, how would I, how would I correct a word in, in a New York Times article, right? There's right. just no way today. <laughs> yeah. But you could imagine, uh, you know, maybe not the New York Times because they probably get flooded with a bunch of bull crap. But, but you can imagine, like, for a lot of lower volume, you know, content sites, blogs, that sort of thing, this workflow is really nice. So just click edit, make a correction, submit it. And, and the, the part that's been really great and, because for me, it was a bit of an experiment. Like, are people going to submit changes? Like, why would they <laughs> take yeah. the time? Uh, but, you know, as you can, as you saw from the contributors page, they do. And what's uh, the thing about the contributors page was that was based on... Um, so, you know, I mentioned we run Jekyll on GitHub pages. But one of the mm -hmm. things we do is that um, we actually... GitHub pages actually floats GitHub metadata to Jekyll. So using a custom, you know, uh, variable GitHub, you, know, you start with or site.github, you can actually get access to more information than you would in a vanilla Jekyll installation, right? Mm -hmm. And so uh, they, um, a lot of this work I think has been by Ben Balter and other folks, where um, he exposed the the repositories and the contributors to um, to Jekyll and on GitHub pages. And so I was like, oh, that's amazing. I'll use that to, um, you know, figure, you know, show a list of people who've contributed to my blog and, you know, use that as a means of trying to encourage people to go ahead and contribute and say, hey, look, here's here's all the people who've helped me out. Thank you. You know? Yeah. And then you're promoting GitHub, too, because you're linking back to their GitHub profiles. Yeah, exactly. That's, exactly. This is that's really cool. This is this is such a good way to do a blog. It's it's just I don't know for me, it's been such a joy having a, a static site, whereas when I was running uh, WordPress or, you know, I'll even bash subtext a little bit, just, you know, just cause it's not as good as a static site where, um, you know, you just had management, right? So you had, you had a yeah. database that, that could, you know, could have issues and you just had to keep a database running. You had to keep the website running. There's multiple parts that had to be connected. And the fact that I can, you know, just have HTML files that, that sort of get automatically deployed is just, uh, it, it's just so much more of a joy to me. Yeah, there was. <laughs> so one of my coworkers has this really great uh, article where he talks about uh, 
the concept of shit work and how you yeah. want to get rid of all of that in your life. Exactly. And, and I reached that same point, you know, even as the author of subtext, uh, where I was finding myself managing database uh, backups and uh, dealing with running out of you know disk space and this and that, all these problems um, of running a a site that basically prints words to a web page, right? It sends right. a few words in angle brackets over the wire. Words that never and, change either. <laughs> yeah, we're, yeah, most of those words <laughs> never ever change. Yep. And I realized that that uh, and you know I'm I'm not the first to realize this, but I I think what a lot of people realize is a lot of the features that the blog engines you know implemented for people only appealed to the authors of the blog, but had but you know like tag even tag clouds and things like that. A lot of that stuff, you know, most readers really don't care about. They just want to read the blog post, right? Yeah. So I decided to simplify, 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 and then. Um, uh, one day, you know, my blog went down for whatever reason when it was still in subtext. And, uh, you know, my coworker who wrote the, the shit work article, Zach Holman, he, he tweeted at me when I was complaining about my blog being down or when I was saying I'm working to bring it back up. He's like, you know, when my blog goes down, we have a, a there's a, a there's a dedicated operations team that works 24 seven to bring it back up. <laughs> it took me a second to realize what he meant was because it's hosted on GitHub it's GitHub's operations team. You know, if his blog goes down, it means, you know, GitHub Pages is down and, and we have our ops team who, you know, is constantly working to keep that up, right? Exactly. I thought, I thought, yeah, that's a really, really good point. And that was the the day I was like, okay, I'm I'm doing this right now. <laughs> yeah, I, I battle with people all the time on this. You know, we talk about Azure and and they're like, oh, well, are, are you, you hear like the tech news, you know, if, if, if Azure goes down or has some kind of isolated outage, it always gets blown out of proportion. They're like, oh, I thought the cloud was supposed to be reliable. And it's like everybody compares it to 100% uptime when in fact they need to compare it to what their existing uptime is. Yeah. You know, sure. We had, you know, so, okay. So we had a 15 minute outage yesterday. I'm just making up a scenario, right? We had a 15 minute outage yesterday, but guess what? You know, if you would have this stuff on prem you would have had a 30 minute outage or maybe even an hour. It would take you 30 minutes to realize it, find the right people. And, and then you would have fixed it, but you know, there's nothing magical about having the servers in your own building. It doesn't make them so they don't go down. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. Yeah. So I, I, you're right. I'd rather have somebody, you know, my blog might go down in the middle of the night and somebody is actively fixing it. And by the time I get up in the morning, it's probably already fixed. So that's such such a good point. Yeah, I really like that aspect. And the other aspect of it is that I always have a full backup of my um, repository because it's yep. a Git repository, right? Yep. Like I don't, I don't have to, I don't have to have a separate backup for the files and for the database, right? The data and the files are all the one thing. And I really like that aspect of this. You know, if this was a site that actually did something really, you know, had a lot of functionality, then you know, I might think differently. But there's really not, you know, there's really, it's really a content, and so. You know, having all the content uh, in Git just makes it so much easier for me to manage. Mm-hmm. And speaking of content, you recently had a, a recent article about uh, entitled "Your Editor Sh- Should Encourage You." I thought was uh, really interesting. You want to tell us a little bit about that? <laughs> sure. I'm. Uh, this was actually an idea that my coworker Pat Nak- Nakajima did. He um, was playing around with TextMate, and apparently, it's. Uh, I show in the article how 
just brain dead easy it is to write this extension in, in TextMate. And what he did was, is every time he saves this file, it shows up a small little message of encouragement. Very, <laughs> you know, very small, very dumb, something like nice work or good job or great, great stuff. And it, you know, effort is, it kind of sounds dumb and, you know, probably is kind of dumb, but when you, he was laughing every time he did it, and he's like, you know, it hasn't gotten old. So I was like, wow, I'd really like to, you know, I've always wanted to write a Visual Studio extension, but I've just been intimidated by it. So I thought, okay, this is about the, one of the simplest things I could write that would still be kind of useful, kind of interesting. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to try this, and it was extremely hard. <laughs> And I had to call in an expert to help me, uh, Jared Parsons, who uh, works at Microsoft. Mm -hmm. uh, and he is one of the more generous people I know in terms of give, offering technical help when it comes to Visual Studio extensions. I think it's probably, you know, one of these things where he's been through the frying pan and just like understands the pain that you're going through and has empathy for you. But uh, he was a big help in helping figure out some of the tricky aspects. Um, no, this is this is awesome. I love this. Way to go! Whenever, so this is actually this one isn't just every time you save, right? Is this do while you? Yes, when, when you save. When oh, you it save is when you save. Doc. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll I'll take empty encouragement. I'm okay with that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take I take anything I can get. And yeah. I I also found this one really interesting because at work I'm start I'm using uh, an internal tool which is a Visual Studio uh, extension. And it's really kind of motivated me, motivated me to look into making my own. And right at the same time is when I saw this article. So I just thought it was really timely, at least an in interest for me personally. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, it's something I've been kind of harping on for a while is that writing Visual Studio extensions should be easier than it is. And, uh, you know, like the nice thing is there's sort of two AP, or there's actually more than two, but there's two. APIs most people know about within Visual Studio. There's the the old DTE, which is kind of the uh, design time environment, I think it stands for, but the way you would interact with like the solution, project system, all that. And that's extremely you know, difficult. It's com-based. It's, it's um, very confusing. And then there's the the MEF interfaces where um, you can just Im you know slap an import tag with an interface and then it will just magically wire that up for you. And I found that to be really nice to use. Um, still a bit tricky because you have to understand um, the object model and figure out like what it is you need and how you get that thing, but or figure out what you need. But once you know what you need, like once you know that oh I need a I text adornment or whatever, you know you just import that and boom magically is there so that part of using MEF within Visual Studio as the extensibility model is really really nice I think uh, you know over time you know you kind of wish they'd overhaul it but you know that that's just the most uh, would be the craziest big project ever that's a yeah a I wonder I wonder if Roslyn is going to help change that too uh, you know I don't I don't know how I'm sure that affects Visual Studio quite a bit so I'm, I'm wondering if that's going to change anything so I do have a I do have a question here on your post. Um, on the one heading, it says what, and there's a stray H before it. I just want to confirm that stray because I'm about to issue a uh, propose a file change. Yeah, that's uh, when people are really confused. They say what? Oh, okay. So it's intentional. Then I won't. That's submit intentional. It. <laughs> Dang it! I'm looking. I'm looking for mistakes. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> the like, last thing like that whipped cream. 
Anyway, and the last thing I want to say that I, I liked about this post is I, I'm always a pro- proponent of doing, you know, small, silly projects just to learn things. And this is just like right up the alley of things that I always try to tell people, you know, pick something that you think is small, silly, but just do it and learn it. That way, when you need to, you know, move on or later on, you find out that, hey, I need to use this technology. You kind of already have a feel for how it works. Yeah, yeah. I it And it helped me a lot. It helped me. uh I, I've started to write some other little extensions um, based on that. And if nothing else, like, you know, it's the kind of thing where uh, every new Visual Studio extension I write, I just copy that project and start from there. <laughs> right. So uh, one other thing I want to talk about, and I just thought of it while while we were talking a little bit ago, Adam.io. I don't know if you're involved in that project at all. Uh, uh, not heavily, but I know what it is. <laughs> okay. I, I, I didn't have any specific questions around it. I, I wasn't sure. Um, um, I haven't looked at it lately cause I know that the initial version, so for anybody who's not aware, it's a, you know, it's an open source, um, text editor. And, um, I know that it's, um, it's web-based, so it'll work in a browser. Ultimately, um, oh. the first version was Mac or was on the Mac. And then there's also a windows version. Is that so, so it's ba- built on web technologies, but it's not web-based. So it doesn't run in the browser. Um, what it is is it, right. it runs on Chromium and Node. And so um, as the sort of substrate for building your application. Uh, so, yeah, it doesn't run in the browser, but um, it, uh, it, it in theory could run on any platform that Chromium can run on. Um, so we have, haven't yet released any official Windows version, but you can get right. one from uh chocolatey um which is uh are you familiar with chocolatey yep yep yeah so cn c-i-n-s-t uh adam i think it's called okay and in, in chocolatey or adam i think it's just adam so somebody yeah, else basically did a build of the code exactly someone okay. else did a build of the code you know it being open source they can do that um you know i i think we will probably have a more you know we'll work with the community to have a more official windows version at some point. Um, mm-hmm. cause this was a early beta of the project. We just wanted to need to get it out there. And, you know, most of my coworkers are more familiar with Macs, So, so that's, that's how that happened. But, uh, yeah, I, you know, the big thing about it is that the, it's through and through, you know, JavaScript slash coffee script base. Right. So right. if you know how to, um, if you know how to do web development, you can extend this editor, right? You don't need to, um, and, and, it's, and it's one of the things I really like about it. Like, uh, I was thinking about how I would do this in Atom, right? And, you know, how would you add a, an adornment or tooltip in there? It's like, well, it's just CSS and HTML. So if I know how to do it in a web app, you know, with CSS and HTML, I know how to do it there. Well, you know, how do I invoke the code? Well, it's just JavaScript, so I'm accessing a DOM, and you know, like it, it certainly presents its own object model as well. Like when you once you get into the editor aspects mm-hmm. of it, but a lot of the way you can extend and change and tweak things, um, it's all built on top of a DOM. So on top of uh, the web DOM or what do you, wait, uh, browser DOM, sorry. Mm-hmm. So, like, you know, you understand the primitives already if you've ever done any web development. You understand how to uh, transform um, things with CSS. So, in that respect, it's a very powerful way of building an extensibility model into an editor uh, through and through. So, that that part really excites me. Okay. I'm still looking for uh, spelling mistakes on your blog. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, are you, you going to correct my last name? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Too many A's. I'll, I'll, yeah, maybe I'll add some more uh, for dramatic <laughs> effect. <laughs> like, con. 
No. Uh, so what I started doing was uh, pasting each of them into Word to see if it could find any spelling mistakes. <laughs> Apparently somebody else did this because they're pretty good. Anyway, um, I'm going to find one today, though. So um, moving on. So our Azure pick of the week. Uh, so this week, I just want, want the technology I want to talk about was the um, the Redis cache on top of Azure. So Azure has had a couple different types of caching mechanisms. Um, the two main ones now being the managed cache offering and now there's this Redis cache. So the, the, the managed cache is basically, a you know, a native Azure service. And this Redis cache is basically Redis running on top of Azure. So you, you say that you want a Redis cache, you pick your size and it will give you, you know, a fault tolerant, uh, you know, distributed cache. And there's a couple different sizes and prices, but it gives you that, that, you know, that standard Redis interface, which is, which is really great. I think, I think we're going to keep seeing more and more of this now that Azure is, you know, a fairly mature platform. You're going to see more and more of these third-party software packages like, um, you know, we've already seen Hadoop and, and those types of, uh, uh, software packages running on top of Azure. So now, now it's just a matter of packaging these things up and, and, you know, providing a, a nice interface for creating these. Cause you know, as, as Microsoft, you know, they don't have to keep reinventing the wheel, um, for each technology. If there's, if there's a good product out there that, that can be contributed to, um, and supported, then a lot of times that's just the best way to go. Um, so I recommend checking that out. It's pretty neat. Uh, Carl, what do you have for the app of the week? This week's app of the week is the new Roku remotes um, apps straight from Roku themselves. So everybody loves having official apps by the companies that originally made them, not third-party ones. Mm -hmm. So we have um, apps for both Windows Phone and Windows 8.1 store apps. Okay. Have you tried these out yet? Yes, I have. Um, I've downloaded them immediately when I found them out. They work pretty solidly. They work really well when you have multiple Rokus. Okay. Um, I had the original Roku. And I just upgraded to a Roku three. So now we have two of them in the house and you can easily select between the, um, um, either one and control them both. Okay. Well, that's pretty so, slick. Yeah. And yep. I saw that. So this one's a, is this a universal app or are there two versions of it? Um, it, they have the logo saying that, you know, there is the other version as well. Okay. So it must but, be a universal. Oh yeah. Cause the I little would, icon shows both. I, that that icon doesn't mean that it's universal, but it is highly likely that it is. Okay, I gotcha. Well, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I have a. I I really like the Roku. I have, I have two Apple TVs, and uh, I I definitely prefer the Roku over the uh, the Apple TV. The I like that the remote is uh, Wi-Fi direct, so you don't have to point it at the at the TV. You can actually put the Roku in a different room if you need to. It works that well. And yeah, I was the, really uh, happy when I found out about that. Yeah, and the and the you know I I've had discussions with people about, you know, Apple TV versus Roku. And, and it all, it all comes down to, to motives. Like what, you know, there's, there's certain ways that companies operate and, and Apple, they, they, as an example, I could never see them having uh, Amazon video on their device. But I, what I like about Amazon video is that they're sort of a, you know, neutral third party, I guess you could, cause that's not totally the case now that, that they have a device out, but they still feel like they're a fairly neutral third party. Unlike you know, buying a movie through iTunes. And then I, I know that, you know, those movies in iTunes, they're, they're pretty much stuck in there and I have to use an Apple device to get them. So I like using, you know, a third party neutral hardware vendor, which I think Roku is the best one out there for that. And then a, a neutral third party video provider, uh, you know, which is typically Amazon and the Roku has pretty much all the features. So this is, 
this is uh good because every once in a while i i lose the roku remote and uh so at least i can use my phone in a pinch now uh so let's move on to uh plugs so if you have feedback for the show you can email us at feedback at msdevshow.com uh where can we find you phil i'm at hacked.com h-a-a-c-k-e-d.com two a's Yep, or on Twitter, uh, twitter.com slash hacked, <laughs> okay. H-A-A-C-K-E-D. Perfect. Carl, what about you? Where can we find you? You can find me on wpdevguy.com or at Carl Schweitzer. Okay, and you can find me at ytechie.com. On Twitter, you can find me at twitter.com slash ytechie. And uh, one thing, if uh, people out there want to send me some tweets or um, send me a, an email through the website, um, I'm looking for some really geeky office decoration suggestions. So my, my wife took, uh, pretty much all the decorations down in my office. She had, she had just put up some sort of generic pictures in here, but she said that I can decorate the, the office with some geeky stuff. So, uh, I'm browsing think geek and, um, a couple other places to, and also like XKCD, some of the posters there. So any other suggestions are welcome. 